0: Today, we have Jay Scott on the show. How can you protect your finances in uncertain times? Join real estate investor Jay Scott as he dives into the topic of why real estate is an amazing inflation hedge. He's completed over 450 single-family flips and shares his transition from flipping to multifamily investing. In addition, Jay identifies three risks with current multifamily deals. Listen and learn. I'm Darren Batchelder, ex-corporate guy turned business owner and real estate investor. It wasn't long ago that I was searching for a new way to provide for my family, dreaming of finding a way to achieve both financial freedom and freedom of my time. Fast forward through many learning lessons, and you'll see the business and the real estate portfolio I have today which changes lives and gives me so much more freedom. The freedom that I thought only existed as a dream. My wife and I have invested in over 9,000 multifamily units, and it all started with a duplex. If you are a C-level executive or other high net worth individual with at least $50,000 to invest, and you're looking for alternative assets to help preserve your family's capital, build your wealth, and save on your taxes, then you've come to the right place. I developed a way to invite others to invest in our deals not available anywhere else and do the same thing I've done. To get started, book your discovery call today at calendly.com forward slash dbatchelder.
1: Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing. Be introduced to the players that are getting it done and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder.
0: A little background on Jay Scott before we start the show. Jay lives in Florida with his family. He was in the tech industry before becoming a real estate investor. He started out flipping residential homes and now is an owner in over 1,000 multifamily units. Jay is a highly accomplished author of not one, not two, but five real estate related books. Now, onto the show. Hello, everyone. Today we have a very special guest. We've got Jay Scott. Jay, appreciate you coming on the show. Hey Darren, thanks for having me. Really looking forward to this. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how we know each other. Um, Jay and I. This is the first time that we're we're actually speaking. Uh, but I did have his business partner, Ashley Wilson, on um, episode one twenty seven. And uh, before we hit record, I was just telling Jay that that I was actually down in on, on the west coast of Florida and was going to attend a uh, meetup that he was speaking at, but I, I didn't get a chance to do that. And I had a conflict. So I'm excited to hear about uh, what he's got going on. And uh, so with that, can you share with the listeners how many properties and how many units you're invested in?
1: Yeah, so it's it's actually, it's not that important of a number to me, um, which is, is funny, but so I, I probably don't even know the exact number. Uh, in the multifamily space, we own four properties. I do know that. Um, and for a little over 900 units, and then in the single-family space, probably somewhere between 50 and 60 units. Uh, a lot of my single-family investing is with uh, a partner of mine, and um, I don't always know when he's buying or selling, so I don't have an exact count <laughs> at the moment. But uh, somewhere, somewhere between 950 and
0: 1,000 units uh, in total. That's you know, it's funny that you started out that way because look, I've been in the multifamily world for four or five years, and. When I first got involved, I heard everybody talking that lingo, right? Like, how many, how many units are you invested in? And and I thought it was kind of funny because you could put fifty thousand or hundred thousand into a syndication that has fifty units or five hundred units. It's still fifty thousand or hundred thousand dollar investment, but you know, five hundred units just sounds so much, you know, grander, and so people talk in those terms. Um, and, and I fell into that. I was like, well, if they're going to play that game, I'll just invest in some of the larger property deals. So, but, um, in any event, that is funny.
1: Hey, um, one, one, one of the things that Ashley probably talked about this on the show is that we get excited about talking about how much we're paying back our investors. And so internally, we have metrics as, as multifamily syndicators. We have metrics, and I, I know some syndicators out there have metrics on how many units they want to buy. But for us, it really is about how we're, how we're treating our investors. Um, and I don't say that as a pitch or anything. It's just it really is kind of the core value of our business. And so um, our bottom line is basically how much we're returning to our investors and, and what that looks like in terms of a percentage of what they've invested with us.
0: That's huge. So with that, how much have you returned to investors and what what is the typical return? So um,
1: so I'm not again, not here to pitch anything, but uh, our our goal for for 2023 is to return two million dollars to our investors this year um, in distributions and cash flow on the money they've invested, um, which I think turns out somewhere between uh, seven and nine percent across uh, average across all the deals that we have, so somewhere in that range. But uh, but two million is kind of our goal this year, and if we can hit that, uh, I think our investors will be very happy, and we'll feel like we've uh, we've had a good year.
0: Well, in this year, especially because you know I'm in, I'm involved both as an LP and a GP in a lot of different deals, and you know this year with interest rates going up last year dramatically. Cash flow has been impacted, so a lot of deals have either reduced or cut off distributions. Um, so, are you? I guess talk to how you guys positioned yourself to be able to continue to have high cash flow.
1: Yeah. So, well, in addition to being a GP, I also invest as a limited partner in in about fifteen. 15- uh, sy- property syndications. I'm also a limited partner in a lot of other types of deals outside of real estate. So I, I certainly get the fact and, and appreciate the fact that it's been a tough year for a lot of syndicators, for a lot of, uh, a lot of operators. And I, I think we're facing in the multifamily space essentially three risks right now. So you mentioned number one is with interest rates going up, um, it's simply impacting cash flow. So anybody that bought a property on a what's called a floating rate loan, meaning the, the interest rate changes with, uh, with the federal funds rate, or with the sofa rate, or with the 10-year treasury, it basically goes up and down as, as the other interest rates that we commonly look at go up and down. Um, with those rates going up a lot over the last year, what we're seeing is mortgage payments are higher, and therefore cash flow is lower. There's less, less money left over at the end of the month, and that means that our investors are getting less money if we have floating rate loans. Number two, um, we're seeing deals that uh, for operators that have uh, loans that are shorter than than the full amortization period, which for multifamily is basically all loans. Um, if we have loans coming due that need to be refinanced, um, typically we have two choices in, in those cases: we refinance the loans or we sell the property. A lot of times we expect to refinance a loan within a couple years of the purchase, and then hold it for another three, four, or five years before we sell. Um, and we do that with the expectation that when we go to refinance, we've added value to the property, we've we've increased the the value of the property, and then when we refinance, we can pull out enough money to cover basically the entire original loan amount plus give some back to uh, to our investors. Unfortunately, with values going down, with cap rates going up over the last year, and values going down. A lot of operators who now need to refinance, they don't have the ability to pull out all the cash that they, or to refinance uh, the the entire cash amount of the loan that they originally took out. So in order to refinance, they would actually have to come to the table with money. They have to bring more money to the table when they close, which means they either have to come up with that money themselves, or they need to go back to their investors and say, we're going to do what's called a capital call. We're going to ask our investors for more money so that we can refinance. So refinancing is the second risk. And then the third risk that we're seeing these days, and the third thing that's impacting um, uh, multifamily operators these days is this thing called rate caps. And so for any, anybody that's been in the business for a while, they, they understand that when you get a floating rate loan, and again, that's a loan where the interest rate can go up and down, oftentimes the lender requires you to buy what's what's called a rate cap, which is essentially an insurance policy that says if interest rates go too high, the insurance policy is going to start paying any overage so that means that the 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 lenders at less risk and the operators at less risk if interest rates go up 5% the operator might be on the hook for one or 2% of that but then the insurance company would pay the other 3% and so that just that protects investors that protects lenders a lot of times lenders require these these policies and these policies typically last one, two, or three years. Well, for any operators that have these insurance policies and these policies are about to run out, to renew these policies these days is now in the six, even seven figure range. And so it can be really, really expensive to, to renew these insurance policies that the lenders are required, um, are requiring. So three big risks that we're seeing these days, interest rates going up, um, refinances coming due, and these rate cap insurance policies, uh, prices going through the roof. and so. Um, Who gets hit most with these things? Typically, it's those operators who got floating rate loans that were on the the order of two, three, four, five years in, in duration. So for any operators out there that have fixed rate debt, typically seven or 10 or 12 years, they're probably in pretty good shape. For any operators out there that have a floating rate loan, which is a considerable number of multifamily investors, they're either in a tough situation right now, or they're going to find themselves in a tough, tough situation in the next couple of years uh, if things don't change when their loan comes due or when their rate cap expires.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great synopsis on, on where we're at. Um, there's a lot of operators that, that fall into that cap, that, uh, one of those three uh, scenarios. So in my, from what I've heard from syndicators on the rate caps, the agencies are requiring them to escrow when they're a year out. Yep, Um, exactly. But if it's non-agency loan, I'm hearing syndicators saying that they're not required to to escrow. So Um, are you finding that to be the case?
1: Yeah. And and so typically what that means is um, if a lender requires you to escrow a year before your rate cap expires, that means let's say, and I'll use an example of, uh, we have, uh, of our properties, we only have one that's a floating rate loan and we do have a, uh, we do have a a rate cap on it. When we purchased that property with the rate cap, we got a three-year rate cap and um, we paid $30,000 per year. And so not not a lot of money, twenty five hundred dollars a month. Um, and we had a lot of up, a lot of downside protection should rates go up. And so rates have gone up five points for over the last year. federal funds rates gone up five points over the last year. Um, and our mortgage payment hasn't gone up much thanks to that insurance policy. But our insurance policy runs out in October. And so last October, our lender said you need to start escrowing, you need to start putting money into escrow in preparation for buying a new rate cap come this coming October. So they want us 12 months in advance to start putting money in in a bank account to save up for when we have to renew that policy. Well, the new price of that policy as of last October was well over $500,000. So we went from $30,000 to well over $500,000, which means we had to start taking 500000 divided by 12 months and start putting that into, um, we had to start putting that into escrow. So over $40,000 a month was going into escrow to save up for next year, even though we had a year to see what that the price of those policies were going to do. And it turns out the policies are now half as much as they were in October, but we still have a lot of money sitting in escrow because the lender required it. And here's the interesting thing. This hasn't happened before where rate caps have gone through the roof the way they have, where interest rates have gone up this quickly. And so lenders haven't quite figured out their process for dealing with these escrow accounts. Are they going to give this money back? Are they going to allow um, operators to stop escrowing when they've escrowed enough money based on the new prices? Now the prices have gone down. When we buy the rate cap, are they going to make us keep any overage in escrow to, uh, to protect against any risk that the lender might have in the future? Um, it's always been not a big deal because... The escrow amount is typically about the same as whatever the original amount was because rates don't don't tend to move as much as they have over the last year. Uh, but this is kind of an unprecedented situation, and so we have a lot of operators who are taking a lot of the cash flow that they're generating. Again, $40,000 a month for us. Luckily, that property is gener- generating well over $100,000 in cash flow. Um, so it's not impacting our ability to operate. Um, but we've seen operators who are seeing rate caps of over a million dollars per year. And so they're having to escrow literally nearly six figures every month and that can eat into your cash flow pretty quickly. That can make it difficult to operate the deal without risk. And it can even put your, put your, your deal at, at risk of, of going into foreclosure. um, if you don't have enough money to both pay your, your expenses and your rate cap escrow.
0: Yeah. It's, and it's confusing, I think, to the passive investors that, that aren't, you know, heavily involved and, and don't really understand it. You know, so for the listener's perspective, as, you know, escrows, you probably have had it on your, one of your mortgages, on your re- residential house. You've had property taxes and insurance maybe that, you know, are escrowed by the lender. So you make one payment to the lender and then the lender will then... Use uh, the escrow funds for to pay off the uh, property taxes at the end of the year or the insurance, and this is something similar. And to, to Jay's point, it's unknown what's going to happen. And you know, when when that year comes up, the cash flow. Some investors have called me and said, "Darren, man, I'm seeing all this like the the monthly, you know, payments have gone from you know." 35,000 to a hundred thousand, you know, like it's just crazy. And, and they don't understand that it's not necessarily all going to interest expense. Now there is higher debt service, but some of that is going into an escrow account that may or may not be paid out, you know? So there's a number of things that can happen before that year ends. You know, one is you could refinance if you can. Um, you know, two is you could sell the property. All Everything that's in that escrow account would come back to the investors. Um, you know, one, one thing you didn't talk about in these three is, you know, the lenders could extend, right? Um, you know, you, the existing lenders could extend their, their duration, and, and, and
1: we're, we're actually see. seeing that right now.
0: You um, are. So,
1: so the brokers that we're talking to, the other owners in the markets that we're in, I, I don't want to speak uh, across all markets, the whole yeah. country, but, but the markets that we're in, the, the brokers are telling us that lenders have been um, uh, very, very nice, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, and have been willing to work with with operators in the multifamily space. Um, My take on that is that lenders know that there's a lot of risky loans coming due or a lot of loans that that are at high risk coming due in the near future in the commercial space in other parts of the commercial space. So specifically office, some parts of retail, um, and anytime a lender has to take back a property, uh, that's going to hurt their balance sheet. Right. And so I think a lot of lenders recognize that in the multifamily space, things will work themselves out in the next year or two or three. So, I mean, population is still growing. We're still undersupplied on housing. Um, so once interest rates start to stabilize and come down, um, once once everybody gets through their refinances and their rate cap expirations, at that point, multifamily, for the most part, I think, is going to be in pretty good shape. So lenders don't have this this. Um, this great incentive to take back properties now to protect themselves because there's not a lot of risk for lenders in, in the multifamily space, in my opinion. Where they do have risk is in the is in the office um, market in certain parts of retail. Um, and my take is that lenders are going to be focusing on that over the next several months. Um, and so they're going to be protecting their balance sheet as much as possible, not taking back properties that will ultimately work themselves out. Um, because they're going to end up having a lot of properties that they have to take back that, that just can't be saved at this point. And again, that'll be outside of multifamily.
0: That is a great point. So I was thinking that, you know, lenders, because lenders in general don't really want to take over a property because they don't, they don't, they don't want to maintain it and they don't want to run it. Um, and so I was thinking that they, that was more of the reasoning, but I think that you have a really good point that there's other asset classes that are, you know, in much more dire shape. I mean, when you have occupancy in, in these office buildings of 50% and, and don't see the light at the end of the tunnel that they're going to be able to fill them. And you know, that they can see that that's gonna be, you know, a problem child for them. And yeah, so-
1: lenders remember 2008 and they remember um, having to take back, or not having to, but choosing to take back all those properties, having all that bad debt on their balance sheet, um, and then their balance sheet's looking really bad and having, having regulators come in and basically say, hey, um, you need to figure out your balance sheet or we're, we're gonna to have to, to take some drastic actions. And I think lenders are gonna do their best to avoid that repeat of two thousand eight for as long as they possibly can, and and again, multifamily I don't think is a big risk to them. So there's no reason for them to kind of put themselves in a bad situation with multifamily when it will eventually work itself out.
0: That's that's a great point. Um, I'm sure you've heard the term like you know there's there's a the saying that's going around like survive till twenty five, right? Like in in the multifamily space um, that people are not worried so much in the medium to long term, it's just like, can we get through this next year, year and a half? Yeah, you know? yeah I, I think that's, that'll be the case. So, you know, and talk about why, um, if hopefully you do believe this, that um, multifamily or real estate in general is a good inflation hedge. Um, so, you know, if we have higher inflation, which we've had, uh, whether it continues on or whether it comes back down who knows um but why is real estate a good inflation hedge rather than just keeping your money in the bank
1: i mean there are a number of reasons um number one um the, the single best inflation hedge on the planet is long-term fixed rate debt um and the reason for that is just to, to use an example um, imagine I bought a house today and um, I, I take out a loan for $100,000, $200,000, whatever it is, and my monthly payment is $1,000 per month. Um, I'm paying the the I'm, I'm getting my salary. Maybe I'm making $100,000 a year. I'm taking that, paying my expenses, then paying my mortgage of, of $1,000 a month. Over the next 30 years, um, I'm going to keep paying $1,000 a month on my mortgage. But we have inflation. And with inflation, that means that my income over the next 30 years is going to increase. My wages are going to increase. Uh, my salary is going to increase. If I'm a consultant, my, my, my hourly is going to increase, whatever it is. Over the next 30 years, I'm going to be making more money. We, if you look back to 1970, average salary was, was what, $20,000, $25,000. Now we're somewhere north of $60,000. Wages go up with inflation. But I've locked in an interest rate, I've locked in a mortgage, I've locked in a payment for 30 years. And so if I'm making $100,000 a year now and I'm paying $1,000 a month, that's 1% of my salary per month I'm paying. If in 30 years I'm making $300,000 at the same job because of inflation, I'm now paying one-third of a percent of my salary every month. Um, And so basically I'm paying off that loan with future inflated dollars. And so literally the single best hedge on the planet against inflation is long-term fixed rate debt because you're borrowing money now and you're paying it off with cheaper dollars later. And real estate is one of the few traditional asset classes that gives us the ability to lock in that long-term fixed rate debt. So that's the first reason why why real estate tends to be a great hedge against inflation. The other reason is... um, Most real estate, and I'm not talking about flipping houses here, transactional type real estate, but uh, real investing involves buy and hold, holding long term and generating cash flow on a monthly or quarterly basis. And typically speaking, with inflation, rents go up, tenant charges, if you're in self-storage or if you're in mobile home parks, whatever asset class you're in, typically the cost for tenants or customers um, to use that real estate is going to go up with inflation and so every month, my tenants are going to be paying more every year. My tenants are going to be paying more. And so the higher inflation, the higher rents are going to go. The higher uh, units are going to go for self-storage units. And so a lot of um, a lot of the inflation is now offset by the extra income that we're generating um, with our asset. And so given the fact that we, we cash flow and, and the, the income we generate is, is directly related to inflation, Inflation doesn't necessarily hurt us, and, or at least it hurts us a lot less than, than other traditional asset classes.
0: So, you know, you bring, bring up that long-rate, fixed-rate debt, um, long-term fixed-rate debt. You know, one of the things I think about is, you know, with everybody locking in 3%, sub-3% on residential homes, like, I don't see them going anywhere. Nope. Like, those, you know, those... So that is going to keep supply low, I, in my mind, for, for single family. Because just to your point, I mean, if they were to go and buy a house down the street, they're going to be paying more than double. You know, the one, prices have gone up, and then interest rates have doubled. So, yeah, we,
1: we we look at 2008, and, and we say, what's different? The big difference is typically heading into a recession, you have higher interest rates because inflation. Um, and 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 the government to kind of quell inflation will raise interest rates, and then heading into a recession, interest rates will go down. The government will lower interest rates to 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 spur on the economy the moment, and get right. us out of out of the recession. Um, and so, a lot of times, heading into a recession, you're you're kind of hit on both ends. Um, you've got a higher rate um, on your current residence. And you have the ability to get a lower rate if you were to sell and buy new residents. So there's some incentive to sell because you're probably going to get a lower price and a lower rate. Well, here we are in this situation where people locked in, like you said, two, three, 4% interest rates. We may not be back there. Even if we hit, 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 head into a recession and, and the Fed decides to lower rates, we may not be back to two, three, 4% mortgage rates anytime soon, if ever. Um, and so there's really not going to be much incentive to. Um, to, to to buy something new because there's rates are going to be higher and prices of values have gone up so much over the last couple of years since COVID um, that even if we see a 10, 20, even a 30% drop, like we did in 2008 across the country, we're still going to see values higher than when people locked in and bought two or three years ago. Right. And so, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that there, there are certainly always going to be people that have to sell people that get jobs in different places or die or get divorced or whatever it is. Um, but I think for the most part, people are going to be very, very hesitant to sell. And they're only going to do so if they're put in a situation where they absolutely have to.
0: Yeah, that's, it's going to be interesting that, you know, that when people start saying that this time is different, you know, you you always have to like wonder. But like it, there are st- a lot of different circumstances. So um, trying to figure out how it's going to play out is, is interesting. Um, so talk about like you've been investing since. I think you said, what, late 2008 or something? 2008 in real estate, yeah. Um, so, you know, what are some of the learning lessons that you've learned? You know, one, getting just getting into real What was your background before? And then why did you get involved in real estate? And then what are kind of some of the learning lessons?
1: Yeah, so um, I was an engineer. I am an engineer by education. Um, I have an electrical engineering degree and an MBA and um, I spent most of my career before real estate in the tech world. Um, spent most of my career at microsoft and and doing business stuff and and tech engineering stuff. And um, when I started, buying real estate in 2008, I had literally never purchased real estate before. I bought my first personal residence in 2008. It was the year I bought my first flip property and my second flip property and my fifth flip property. Um, And so we kind of hit the ground running flipping houses in 2008 and did that for about a decade. I'd say the biggest lesson that I learned was actually around flipping houses. And it was the fact that I regret every property I've ever sold. (laughs) Um, looking, looking back, we, we, we flipped about 450 houses (laughs) and looking back, um, obviously I, I wouldn't have had the ability financially to have kept every one of those 450 houses. But I think back, if I had simply for every four houses I bought, I sold three and kept one. So I, I ended up with a hundred of those houses that I had bought between 2008 and 2015, um, that would add a good 20, 30, 40 million dollars to my net worth. Yeah. Um, and so people say, yeah, we, you, that's true, but who knows? We, we may never see like a two thousand eight type event again. But the reality is, like you like you were saying earlier, we have inflation, and typically, over any ten year period, the value of of real estate, uh, residential real estate, is going to go up. If you look back to to pre nineteen hundred. Um, over any 10 year period, we've seen real estate go up in value, and, and typically it does it at, uh, at the rate of inflation a little bit higher, three, three and a quarter percent per year, uh, compounded. And so buying and holding is always going to be a better decision than buying and selling, um, especially when you factor in the, 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 the taxes. Anytime you sell, you're going to take a big tax hit. Um, I know a lot of people that they, start flipping houses, and, and after they flip their first or second or third, they kind of realize that flipping houses, they, they hear all the tax benefits of real estate, but they don't realize that you don't get any of those from flipping houses. And if anything, flipping houses is, is actually worse than than working a full-time job because not only are you going to be, pay ordinary income taxes, um, but you're also going to pay self-employment taxes. And, and so um, you, you take a big tax hit when you flip houses. And so my biggest learning is is that I wish I would have just held a a lot more properties a lot sooner.
0: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So for the young guns out there, uh, my son just graduated from Texas A&M just a few days ago. And I've counseled him that I heard it on another podcast. So it wasn't like I came up with the idea myself, but somebody said, you know, these young people that should, you're only a first time home buyer once, and so use your FHA loan, three and a half percent down payment versus 20% and buy yourself a duplex or threeplex or fourplex. So he, he wants to buy a fourplex. And you, you can use the income from the other three tenants. Helps qualify you for that loan. And I think to myself, I'm like, I don't know if he'll be successful doing it or not. You know, if he'll be motivated to, to find the right deal or not. But if he does... Man, he's 22 years old. Like, he'll be set up if you can just buy it and hold and just, you know, take the cash flow. Um, Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I was in Florida, I mentioned to you, and I lived in Florida before living in Dallas now. And we sold our house 2009, 2010. Um, And I don't know, we sold it for 400 and some odd thousand. And I saw, we met up with some neighbors the other day um, well, in January, and they said, "You know, Darren, you know what? You know, how much your house is worth now?" And I said, "No." And they said, it's, "It's a million bucks." And I think to myself, if I just rented it, you know, and just positive cash flow, and just held on, that's, that's another five, six hundred thousand. I mean, that's, that's a lot of money off one house. Yeah, so. we, we did the same thing. We we moved down to Florida
1: in 2019. Um, we didn't have a lot of time to find our perfect house. Um, so we bought basically the first thing we found that was in the neighborhood that we really wanted and, and that would suit our family. And in 2019 to 2020, we we lived in that property and then COVID hit and my wife said, we really need more more room. We're both working from home now, full-time, and, and we have two kids, and we have a dog, and um, we, we need more room. So we moved literally down the street, same neighborhood, but we bought a bigger house. And we debated, do we keep our old house yeah. as, as a rental, and or do we sell it and, and buy the new one? We decided to sell it and, and buy the new one, as opposed to keep it and buy the new one that house that we sold went from $400,000 when we sold it in 2020 to, to nearly $900,000 today. So half million, half million dollars. In, in, in like in, two um, or three years, In two or three years. Uh, um, and it would have been a simple, uh, rental property cause it was right down the street could have right. managed it ourselves. And, and so you live and you learn. So, and I, I knew, 10 years ago that I should be holding more properties and was already regretting selling stuff. And, and I still made the mistakes. So we all make mistakes. Can't kick
0: yourself, but, but learn from them. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That That's great. So uh, you wrote like five books. So are, th- are they all on real estate and, and what, what are they focused on?
1: Yeah. So they're all real estate. Um, so when I write a book, I, I, I try and achieve one of two goals. I either want to write a book that hasn't been written before um, or write a book that I think I can do better than, than anybody has done before. Um, and if I can't do one of those two things, it's really, it's not worth the time. Um, but my first two books were uh, the first book was, was how to flip houses. Um, when I first started, I, I think I read everything that was out there. And what I found was um, they were all great motivational material but they weren't really tactical. They weren't how-to. They didn't provide a lot of specifics. Again, I have an engineering background. I'm, I'm not good at writing motivational material, but I'm really good at writing textbook-type books. Um, so I wrote a book called The Book on Flipping Houses, um, which is really a, a in 20 steps, how to flip your first house. One of those chapters was on estimating rehab costs, and it ended up being like a 350-page chapter. Um, so Holy I said, okay, I'll just, I'll just release that as, a, as its own it's book. It's a book. Yep. And so on the same day, I released my first two books. Um, then my wife and I decided to write a book on negotiating real estate because we couldn't find any good books on negotiating real estate. Um, and then uh, my fourth book was all about economic cycles and um, how the economy works and how it impacts real estate and real estate investors um, called Recession Proof Real Estate Investing. Uh, and then my fifth book, which was just released about six months ago, is called "Real Estate by the Numbers," and it's basically all the math and finance that goes into uh, being a successful real estate investor.
0: That's awesome. Um, you know, with, with uh, so what, what's the why and for you in writing these books? Do you do you look, make a ton of money off the books? I, I, I make some money off the books. I'm I
1: I. Not sure I would keep doing it if I didn't make any money off the books, right. um, but I love to teach. And so when I started in 2008, um, I guess this is the, the the etymology of the first book or the first two books. In 2008, um, I decided to start flipping houses and I was like, if I'm going to do this, I might as well document it so other people can learn from it. So I, I started this website called 123flip.com. And I started posting every day um, exactly what we were doing, pictures of our projects, um, financials of our projects, literally down to the penny, all the good stuff, all the bad stuff. Nobody was doing this at the time. Nobody was posting like the detailed financials down to the penny. Basically, all the flip shows out there where you buy a house for a hundred, you sell it for two hundred, you just made a hundred thousand dollars. but anybody in the business knows that's not true. You've got your all your holding costs, you've got your rehab costs, your selling costs, all those things. So you're making a lot less, but nobody was talking about that. So I created this website, um, d- put literally all the details of my, uh, of my projects down to the penny. Um, the website became really popular. Um, and I started getting a lot of requests for, Hey, can I take you to lunch? Hey, can I do a phone call? Hey, can I take you to coffee? Hey, um, can you come on, on come speak at this conference? And and I'm, I'm an introvert. Um, again, very much the, the engineer personality. Um, and so the thought of having to like have lunch with different people every day or, or have coffee with people or talk on the phone was just horrendous. But at the same time, I wanted to be able to help people. So my wife said, you've got all this information on your blog. Why don't you just organize it into a book and then tell people to buy the book? And so that's basically where the first two books came from. It was just a, a way to avoid having to, to talk to people. Um, and so I, I I took all all the articles I wrote on the blog, I organized it into the book, I ended up rewriting it all, but uh, but that's where the book came from. And so for me it's just it's I, I love teaching, I love providing information. Again, if I can do it in a way that nobody's done before or information that nobody's
0: provided before, right? I, I, I love doing it. That's awesome. I, I love that. I love to teach. You know, in my experience, the 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 people that have created a ton of success. You know, I, I speak more with, with real estate folks that, that have, but even just, you know, business owners that I've met that have had tremendous success, they want to help the next guy. That's just, I'm not saying that every single person wants to, um, but, you know, it just seems like it's in their DNA that, you know, the successful, there's a piece that, yeah, it's financial, but then there's also a piece of giving back and helping the next guy up. And, yeah, and yeah. So. There's,
1: there's this concept of, of abundance mentality versus scarcity mentality. Um, people who believe that there's enough money and enough success and enough... Um, Stuff out there that everybody can be successful. It's not a zero sum game. Doesn't have to be losers to to have winners. Um, And then there are people out there that really believe in the zero sum game. They believe that for every winner, there's got to be a loser and and there's no way to create money out of thin air or success out of thin air. And what I've noticed is those who have the abundance mentality tend to do a lot better long term in business than those who have the scarcity mentality. And along with that abundance, mentality, um, is this desire to help others and to teach. And so typically those who are the most successful also have that, that, um, that drive and that willingness to, to help others and teach others and prop others up.
0: Yeah. And, and what I would say to like the new, the new investor, the one that's looking to get into their first deal right now, you're just thinking about you and providing for your family and building wealth for you. But it's amazing what happens after you, you start becoming successful, then your network starts asking you, "Hey, how'd you do it?" And all of a sudden, you start giving back. Like you didn't start out that way, but it it just kind of transitions that way for a lot of people, and so there's a ripple effect to that. So, um, you know, talking about new people, you know, let's talk about both new passive investors and new active investors. So. New passive investors um, that get involved with any of your deals, like you know, what are, what are the, their typical concerns, and you know how do you educate them to to help them you know kind of get over the over the hump? Because I know for me, my first passive deal, I was I was nervous, man, wiring 50k or 75k, um, even though I had done a lot of due diligence, I still was nervous doing it. Yeah. So when, when I
1: look at due diligence, um, uh, and again, I do a lot of passive investing in other people's deals as well. Um, the areas that I look at are um, the operator, the deal. So what is the property? What is the, 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 the business plan for the deal? The location, the returns, and the risks. Those are the five things that I care about. Um, but one of those things I care about 10 times as much as the other four combined, and that's the operator. I know that if I can find a great operator, if I can find somebody who is ethical, who is uh, intelligent, who is conservative, who is going to make the right decisions, I don't need to worry about those other four things nearly as much because I know the operator is going to be thinking about those things, and they're going to ensure that, that all those things are taken care of. Um, I have a lot of investors who invest with me and, and it, it, it's, it's a weird thing because I can't say this to them and I, I hesitate even saying it on a podcast because it sounds so horrible, um, but it's the reality. Um, I have a lot of investors who come and, and they, they want to sit down with me and work through the underwriting and they want to see the numbers, they want to uh, validate and verify that, that all of my assumptions are, are 100% accurate and what I, I will actually say to them, but again, it's a weird conversation, is look, look, I could be lying to you about the numbers, and you would never know. And that's the thing. These deals are complex enough, and even if it's something as simple as um, um, different locations, like one street over could be a better location than, than, than one street in the other direction. If you don't know the location really well, you're never going to be able to evaluate a deal as well as I can if I do know the location. If you don't know what's, things like absorption rate, So number of units out there compared to the number of units in your property, the types of units and and how the demographic is going to to demand those types of units versus different types of other types of of units, whatever. Um, The the reality is um, when I invest in other people's deals, as smart as I think I am, as good as I might be at underwriting, if I invest with another really smart operator, if that operator wanted to obfuscate the deal if he wanted to, to, to hide the, the numbers from me, if there are bad things in the deal that he wanted to keep from me, I would never know. And I'm pretty good at this business. And so the reality is, I don't ask any operators, hey, let me, I'll ask to see their underwriting. I might ask to see their p I might ask a few little questions um, just to make sure they didn't miss anything big. But if they're trying to keep something from me, if they're smart, they probably could. And if I wanted to keep something from my investors, I could probably keep them from figuring it out, and so that's why it's so important to find operators that you trust and you know, and that that you have some relationship with and are willing to have a long term relationship with, um, because at the end of the day, the operator is is has to do the right thing, um, and and you want operators who are willing and able to do the right thing, and so. Um, I guess that's just a long way of saying of those five things I do due diligence on Mm -hmm. um, the operator, him or herself is by far number one. And I will always make sure that I'm investing with people that I know that I trust and that I know other people that have been investing with them for a long time um, and have never had a bad experience. Um, And when I say bad experience, I don't mean nothing's ever gone wrong because that's the other thing I want to see deals. I want to see operators that have had things that have gone wrong because there's always going to be things that have gone wrong. And if something's, if nothing's ever gone wrong in one of your deals, it's just a matter of time. And I want to know what's gone wrong and how did that operator deal with it? Because at the end of the day, that's my biggest concern that something's going to go wrong and the operator needs to, to deal with it. Right. Um, and so for me, Uh, When I do due diligence, a lot of it is going to the operator and saying, hey, can you give me five references? Can you give me five people on your deals? Um, If if it's not somebody I know well, can you give me five people that I can talk to? And then I'll go back and I'll say, thank you. I don't actually want to talk to those five. Can you give me another five? (laughs) And then I'll go back a third time and say, will you give me another five? Um, Because I know the first five, we all have five people that are raving fans. We probably have 10 or 50 people that are raving fans. I want the people who are invested in the deal, but aren't necessarily the raving fans that aren't necessarily the person that's going to invest in every deal or that knows the operator really well. And then I want to ask a second question. So so give me that first five, second five, third five, and then I'll start calling people on the third list. Um, And then the other question I'll ask the operator is, give me the name of somebody that's dealt with one of your your deals that didn't go perfectly, that didn't go well. Um, Because I want to hear, I don't care that it didn't go well. I want to hear about how you dealt with it. And I'll call those investors and I'll basically say what happened and and how did they deal with it? Um, Because that's, that's the important thing.
0: You know, those are, those are, those are great questions. Great questions. And you're right. I mean, everybody's going to have their top guys that will stand up for them. So getting down that list, that's, that's interesting. Um, You know, the other thing is, so, so I, I love the fact that you said that if something hasn't gone wrong, it will eventually. I remember I was pretty early in, maybe only a year or two in and year end probably, and I had people saying, Hey Darren, you're invested in a lot of deals. Tell me you're good operators and you're bad and I was like, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. You know, you gotta go do your own due diligence. But I had in my head, all right, I got this one deal that is like my dog deal. Like I just Don't think it's going well. And then about a year later, I saw a whole bunch of transactions that were, like, around that deal. And I'm like, holy cow, that that deal is going to be, like, one of my best. Like, they had had turned it around. So, you know, there are times if you talk to a person, they could be going through a struggling time. And if you badmouth them at that point in time, and then six months later, they turned it around, you never see the reprint of that article. You just remember that one s- statement. So be careful on, you know, bad-mouthing your, your operators because they wanted, not, I'm sure that there's some operators that are just out there that, but for the most part, I, ones I have met, they're trying to, to maximize the value uh, for each of their, their investors. I'm in two
1: deals as a passive investor right now that have basically stopped paying out distributions. Um, those are the two deals that I lose the least sleep over because I know really? that those two operators, um, one, they probably stopped and not probably, I know they did, but they, they stopped distributions more as a cautionary measure and a right. way to preserve capital. Um, it was actually a strategic move for them. They were willing to say to their investors, we're going to take money out of your pocket short term to lower risk. It's hard as an operator to tell your investors, we're going to stop paying you But it's very brave to be able to say, we're going to stop paying you um, because we know it's the right thing to do for this deal. And I wouldn't be surprised if those two operators end up, I don't know if they're going to lose investors, but they're certainly going to to, to generate some ill will from their investors short term because a lot of investors, they get scared when they see that, that distributions have slowed down or stopped. Um, but I think at the end of the day, those two operators are both going to do really well on those deals um, because they're being conservative. They're, they're mitigating risk. And at the end of the day, I think all their investors will look back and say, wow, they did the right thing. All these other deals that I did may kept paying cash flow, but at what risk? At right. what expense? And a lot of times that risk is that you're, you're running on on um, fewer reserves or less reserves. You're running thinner every month. Um, so. I, I like operators that are willing to to do hard things, things that aren't necessarily popular um, because it's conservative and, and it's, it's basically protecting their investors long-term.
0: I love that term brave. You know, I mean, it, it is, it's, you know, it's, it's especially if they're first out there and, and, they, you know, 10 other people haven't already, did, you know, done that same thing and they're just kind of falling on jumping on the bandwagon. But the, you know, if they are solid and then they, you know, like you say, they t- do a strategic move that is brave. So you do coaching also, is that correct? We do. Um, what, 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 I, does, I, what does that look like in, for you yeah. guys?
1: So um, we actually started mentoring in multifamily, coaching in multifamily uh, about two years ago. Uh, the, the main goal for us. Um, and we do charge for it, uh, full disclosure, but the main goal for us um, wasn't income. In fact, for the time we spend and the effort we put in, the income that we're generating isn't really worth as much as us doing more deals. Um, The value to us in doing the coaching was um, being able to build a community of new investors that we hope will be finding lots of deals And when finding lots of deals or when finding deals, um, they're going to realize or they're going to decide, hey, we could use some help on these deals. Um, Because multifamily, and and you know this, and and anybody that's operated or invested in multifamily knows, multifamily is a team sport. You can't do it by yourself. It's one of the things I love about multifamily is that um, I get to focus as, as a member of my team, as a partner in the company, I get to focus on the couple things that I'm really, really good at. And Ashley, my partner, focuses on a couple of things that she's really good at, and we surround ourselves with employees and contractors and um, and other people that are amazing and really good at the things that they're good at, and you build a team. And so our goal by, by building the coaching program was to bring in new investors, teach them how to, uh, to do deals um, in the hopes that um, when they started finding deals, if they hadn't yet put together a team, they would come to us and say, hey, let's partner on these deals, which would... Increase our deal flow. Increase our ability to get footprint in other parts of the country. Increase our ability to learn new markets. Um, so basically, I don't want to say we're using our our students, um, but it, it's very it's a very symbiotic relationship. Um, we, we're, we're we're getting benefit from them as much as they're getting benefit from us, and and everybody everybody gets propped up long term. Um, and so that was the the main reason for starting. But, uh, but yeah, so Ashley and I have a, a, a mentoring group. I'd say the big thing that differentiates us from a lot of groups out there is um, we do focus on finding deals. We focus a lot on finding deals. We focus a lot on raising capital and funding deals. Um, but we also focus a lot on that third piece, which is the operating operations. Um, and, and uh, Ashley's been through some coaching programs. I've looked at some coaching programs. And the one thing that they all seem to have in common is they kind of start to celebrate when the deal is acquired. And then right. when you get to the closing table on the purchase, like everybody's like, congratulations, you did it. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the starting line. That's, that's like, you haven't done anything at that point. That's not where the money is made. The money's made for the next three or five or seven years. Um, and so a lot of these programs don't focus on the next three or five or seven years. And, and that's what we really like to focus on.
0: Yeah, I, I love that. Um, I've seen that model definitely work with like in other coaching programs, mentorship programs where the coaches... Develop relationships with the new people, and then they end up partnering. And so that that I definitely can see uh, coming to fruition. Another thing you said was um, you kind of didn't tie them together, but earlier you were talking about how people you know reach out to you, and you that's why you wrote the books. Um, there was another syndicator who who's done very well for himself, and you know I met with him personally and. And he said, Darren, I was getting all these phone calls, you know, and, and I love to help people. I love, you know, I love getting on the phone and talking to them. And, but sometimes, you know, I talk to them for half hour, hour, hour and a half. And then I have no idea if they do anything. You know, the, there's, you know, one call or two calls and then they're gone. You know, I've, you know I'm, I'm good if they like use that and they actually went out and took action and got something done, but if they just got off the phone and was like, oh, that's cool, and then they went on to some other thing, well, that was a waste of my time. So he's like, I started charging to, you know, talk with people and mentor people because, not because I was trying to make money off it as much as I wanted to make sure I wasn't wasting my time, that I was qualifying the people that I was talking to, that they were serious, that they were... You know, planning to take action.
1: Yeah, and and it's it's one of those things that I remember when I used to hear people say that it, it sounds like a cop out. I'm charging because I have to, not because I want right. the money. But what I've learned is it, it really is true. And I, for years, anytime somebody said, "Let me take you to lunch," "Let me buy you a coffee," "Let's can we jump on a phone call?" I never. I'm not. I'm, I'm a people pleaser. I'm not good at saying no. I, I've gotten a little better at it, but I'm still not very good at it. Um, and so literally probably thousands of hours I've wasted on people that have never done anything because they asked and I, I couldn't say no. And, and I couldn't really set a bar um, that made it more likely that they would. And again, while I love helping people, I just think, what could I have done in those thousands of hours that I could have helped other people? And so, um, so I, I do, I spend a lot of time speaking. I mean, I travel around the country speaking at events where I don't get paid. Um, I was in Dallas two weeks ago. I was in Miami last week. I'll be in Dallas again this week. Um, I'll be in Orlando later in the year. I'll be in San Antonio later. And these are all things that they're just, they're, they're, they're conferences that people are putting on. They're not paying me to come speak. I'm not selling anything there, but that allows me to kind of scale The teaching up a little bit better it allows me to get in front of 100 people or 300 people for an hour as opposed to go to lunch with somebody for an hour um and now there's 300 people that have potentially gotten benefit from what i have to say and and then i'll spend two or three days at the conference talking to people and so it really is a scale thing and um i i hope and i would love for people to to more realize that if you ever reach out to somebody like me or you or or anybody else that that has the service attitude um but can't give as much as they want. It's not necessarily because they're stingy with their time. It's not necessarily because they don't like you. It's not necessarily because they don't want to help. Um, It really just is a scale thing and it it can be very difficult at times to say no. Um, But we have to um, because there's just not enough time in the day for me to be able to help everybody I'd like to help and everybody that would like to be helped.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great way to put it. And well, well, you're coming back to dallas we might have to get together so i'll have to figure that figure that out we'll, we could talk about See that in I'll two fine. weeks all right well i'll i'll make it a point if uh, if you have any free time so we, maybe we get together for coffee or something
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey um, i would actually i would actually love that
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's great so hey what do uh you like to do outside of work for fun um so uh
1: these days it's a lot of family stuff um. So, like family uh, I, I, vacations or family? yeah. So, so I I have two boys, twelve and thirteen. Okay. Um. And for the first six Sports. or seven, or yeah, they're 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 in that. They're a lot of soccer and piano and those sorts of things. Um. For the first six, seven, eight years of their lives. Um, we were very fortunate. Basically, um, we wouldn't travel or I wouldn't travel without my family. So my wife and I worked together for like the first 10 years. We flipped houses together for about 10 years. And so our rule was kind of, and the reason we left the tech world was literally because we wanted to be able to put our family first. And so everybody kind of that, that knew me up until a few years ago knew that if I showed up at a conference, I was with my wife and my two kids. Even when they were babies, we, we would awesome. be dragged, drag we the babies to closings. We dragged drag the babies to to properties. We drag the babies to conferences. Um, up until the time they were like eight nine years old, um, and then at that point, like school kind of became more demanding, and we couldn't do it as much. Um, and Um, so for, for the first eight years, I was with my wife and my kids literally every second of the day and I loved it. And then for the last few years, um, they've started to, to get their own lives and they're in school now. So they can't travel with us as much. And my wife can't travel as much. And I'm starting to recognize that I only have a couple years left. And so, um, so these days, um, we still travel as a family to a lot of conferences. We do, we, we like to find places that we want to go on vacation and we'll find a conference that happens to be in that location, um, that coincides with, with about when we want to go. And, and so, um, we do a lot of strategic scheduling to kind of bring our, our work life and our family life together. And I guess that's probably the best way to say
0: it. That's very, that's very cool. Um, it was a, an, a Netflix special documentary on golfers. I don't know if you're a golfer. Um, but the, but there was one of the golfers he brought, he decided to bring his family everywhere to every tournament. And that was unique. And, and, but he was really focused on you know, making, look, I, want, I love golf, but I, I want to make sure that I'm not away from my family all the time. So I'm going to bring them with yeah. me. So that's It's fantastic. not for
1: everybody, but, but right. for, for us, it's like the fact that we have the ability to do it, 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 it there's no reason not to.
0: That's awesome. So now you got you've done a ton. I mean you flipped fifty some odd homes and your big multifamily guy. Four hundred and fifty. Four hundred and fifty homes? Yeah. Oh, you have a, you have fifty to sixty still. Yeah. Oh my gosh, four hundred and fifty units single family. That's massive. So what do you do next? What's your kind of you've written five books, you're you know, done the conference circuit, what Kind of, what do you what do you do next? Um, you do?
1: I've been doing multifamily for the last four or five years, and I love it. Um, and so, one of the things I, I realized I had to to do when I got into multifamily was uh, I did single family. We flipped houses for ten years. I didn't take investments from 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 other people. I didn't take money for the most part from other people. Um, And so I never in a situation where um, I had anybody that was relying on me to be successful in order to get their money back or to get their profits. But I realized that as soon as I got into multifamily and we started doing syndications, um, that I would be taking 10s of millions of dollars from people. And the only way I can do that is if I'm willing to commit to focusing my time 100% on those endeavors. um, And commit to doing it for as long as it took to get those investors repaid and and get them everything that they deserved. Um, And so I made a commitment four or five years ago when I came into the multifamily space that I would do this for some period of time. I said 10 years. Um, And so for at least the next five years, um, this is kind of what I'm doing full time. Um, And I owe that to my investors. I owe that to to everybody that's kind of um, invested with us and rely on us and works with us. And so that's, that's where I am for the next five years. Um, past that, uh, I don't know. Um, right. well, I, I, tend hey. to do, I tend to do things in 10-year chunks, yep. so, so I'll reevaluate in a couple of years. That's awesome.
0: Um, well, how do people reach out to you if they want to get to know you better? What's the best yeah. way for them to do that?
1: Um, Scott. .com. Just letter J. Scott Connect with Jscott.com. That'll link you out to everything you need to know, including my email address and and, uh, and anything else you might be interested
0: in. Awesome. Um, Jay, I, I when we stop recording here, I'm going to ask you more about getting together in Dallas. But uh, thank you so much for coming on, sharing with the with the listeners. Uh, listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. Until next week, sign off. Thanks, Darren.
1: Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at DarrenBatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.